a few weeks, Lord willing. Philippians chapter number 1. Again, the background, the city of Philippi, uh, there in the, the area that we would consider Asia Minor, Turkey, in that area of the world. It was a, a city that did not have enough Jews to be able to have a synagogue, and there were a group of uh, people that were meeting down by the river. Uh, Lydia got saved there, was discipled. Uh, finally, a small church began. There was an uproar in the city over people getting saved, the preaching of the gospel. Paul and Silas were thrown in, in jail. They were singing at midnight and rejoicing and praying, and the gates of the prison came open, and the Philippian jailer cried out, What must I do to be saved? And, of course, Paul, uh, we know the verse very well, Acts 16, verse 31, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And the Philippian jailer got saved, and revivals broke out. revival broke out in his house, and his whole household got saved and baptized. And God did a marvelous work. And in the letter to the Philippians, there is hardly any negative Throughout the entire book, there is a theme of rejoicing and joy. These are first-generation Christians. They have a joy in the Lord that is just delightful. And it comes out in Paul's letter throughout the book of Philippians. But notice his prayer in Philippians 1, as we touched on last week, as we began. His prayer is that they have biblical discernment. And here is a first-generation group of believers in this church, and Paul's prayer is that they have good biblical discernment. Think about what first-generation Christians often have to face. They have to face temptations from their past life. They have to face some of those friends and some of those former lifestyle connections. They have to deal with some of those things that they've had to withdraw from and they've had to uh, extricate themselves from. And in first century Bible times, there were cultural sins that were normal and acceptable, just like we find here in the 21st century. And we're finding them more and more up in our face, front and center. And we are appalled by it, or at least we should be, in the first century even without the technology that, that we have today, there were some very prominent sins, cultural sins that were in their face. And again, a lot of these Philippian believers had gotten saved out of uh, those uh, sins that permeated the culture. And Paul is praying that they have discernment. Philippians 1 and verse Number nine, in this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. That word there, again, as we looked at last week, abound means to exceed and to excel. So there is this love that will abound, will exceed, will excel more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. So as we love God... We grow in our love for what God loves, and we grow in our hatred for what God hates. 
Many times we are sorry for our sin and we confess our sin, and, and that's good and well and right. I find myself even I find myself praying, Lord, help me to hate my sin. Help me to see my sin the way you see it. Change my mind about my sin and the way I view my sin. And that's kind of what Paul's saying here. Our love for God, as I touched on last week, our love for God is not this therapeutic, ushy-gushy, mushy love like a, a crush or a, some sort of, I don't know, superficial kind of love. This is a heartfelt, deep, genuine, advanced love. It's a love that is rooted and grounded in knowledge of God, who he is, his holiness, his character, and desire to please God in every way. And that in turn results in that we love even the way God designed the homes and the church and even our bodies. I went off on a little bit of a rabbit trail last week, but part of our love for God means we love the way God designed things. In our culture today, one of the reasons that we don't have even good discernment among believers is there is more of a love for the world than there is a love for God. There's an attraction to the world. No wonder we have then so-called Christians, professing believers, who don't have the love and the passion for holiness and righteousness and are actually squishy on things that are very clearly identified as sin and evil in the Word of God. And there's compromise. And it disgusts me that now there are uh, people who call themselves Christians that are accepting forms of immorality and licentiousness. And they're saying that, well... It's a way to, to reach a particular community, or God didn't say so explicitly in the Word of God. They're allegorizing, they're trying to misinterpret and reinterpret Scripture that is very clear. And ultimately what it shows is a lack of love for God and for His holiness and His character and for the truths revealed in His Word. And without that love for God, we lose discernment. We cannot distinguish right from wrong. Again, as a husband or as a wife, that, that, that married love, as you grow in your love for one another, you grow, Lord willing, you've grown as we have spent years married. We have hopefully grown in our love and that knowledge of what we don't like or what we like. We begin to share in activities that maybe we never would have thought of ever participating in that activity. But because we love our spouse, we now are willing to sit and watch a whole series of Anne of Green Gables or Pride and Prejudice or go to certain activities, certain events. We actually might spend more than five minutes in Walmart. We actually might go to a particular shopping center or for... Uh, the, the ladies, it might be you actually cast a, a fishing line or you actually sat through a ball game or whatever the activity might be. You begin to share even in activities and you begin to enjoy each other's activities. That's a, a small way of trying to illustrate 
how our love, how it grows and how it increases and it deepens and it helps us in our relationship because there are tough times that come and because we love each other so deeply, the tough times we wrap our arms around each other and we go through them together. And they are incredible benefits to having a love for one another that is that kind of bond. Now that's a married bond that's unique, I realize, but you, you understand that even in a uh, friendship type of, in a phileo, brotherly love kind of way. We have true, genuine, close friends, people that we call. People, I, again, I say our best friend should be our spouse. They should know, besides God, they should know the deepest secrets of our hearts. They should be the closest ones to us besides our, our Lord and Savior. But there are those good friends, a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. That person you call up on the phone. They know you, they know you well. They will even sometimes say something to you in a text message or in a phone call or an email and say, have you thought about this? Sometimes they're point blank and they say, you are not thinking right here. Settle down. Stop it. Chill. Think about this for a minute. Have you thought about this? What about this? Or they pat you on the back. They give you a hug. They cry with you. They encourage you. They're praying with you. They're praying for you. And there's a experience there. There's a knowledge there. There's a deep love there. And so there is a desire for what is best for that individual, for God's best in their life. And that's the, the type of love that we're talking about here that results in a discernment. That word judgment has to do with moral perception, insight, and application. Our love for God grows. It deepens and it demonstrates itself in discernment. There is a knowledge, a deep knowledge, an intimate bond and relationship that results in good judgment, in moral perception, insight, and application. So we go on and we see then that this, this, this love, this discernment, results in verse number 10, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may approve things that are excellent. And this is literally proving things that differ. And there's no doubt that the Apostle Paul was making reference to something that would have been very familiar to them in the first century, metallurgy, the purifying of metals, the purging of metals that in many cases would produce money, but also tools and other instruments that they would use, cooking utensils or whatever it might be. But money is one area in particular that it would show its final product because the money would have a pure metal. The dross had been taken off, purged, usually through some sort of fiery process. And through this practice of metallurgy, the impurities of the metals would be taken away. And then there would be this pure or mostly pure metal that had higher value because the dross, the impurities were taken off. And now there is a metal, what's left, the 
the, the precious metal that is left, that has been purified, is now of greater value. It has a, a distinct value to it. And then, of course, what would the emperor come along and do? He would put his stamp on it, and now it had even more value because it was stamped by the Caesar. It had the Caesar's inscription on it. Hence, Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar, and to God's that which is God's. So the metal would be common because it would often be turned into money, and then, of course, tools, instruments, etc. But the idea then is that we grow in our knowledge of God. We, in turn, grow in our discernment. We now can evaluate and we can prove what is precious, what is valuable. We can identify what is good, what is right, what is holy, what is just. And we can hold on to that. We can grab hold of that. We can put our emphasis on that. We can put our value on that, which is good, which is pure, which is right. That's what the Apostle Paul is praying for the Philippians. And in turn, by the inspiration of God and the preservation of his word, praying for us. That we, in turn, can pray for one another. I find myself often praying for my children. God, help them to make good decisions. Help them to use good wisdom. Help them to do the right thing. Especially as my daughter is 10 hours away, I have found myself praying often, Lord, help her to know what to do in this situation. We're not there. I hope and pray by the grace of God that we have raised her well enough that she's down there. And yes, she has the props. She has a set of rules. She has accountability. I thank the Lord for it. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still a heart that has to be right with God, that has to know God's will and discern God's truth and what is right and what is best in that matter. And so we, we pray this for our children, our grandchildren. We pray this for our loved ones. We, we pray this prayer for others, and we pray it for ourselves, that we would prove things that differ, that we would hold on to that which is excellent, that we would test whatever it is that we are having to decide, wherever we're having to evaluate, wherever, whatever it is that we're having to do, we are testing and we are evaluating it. We are filtering it through the Word of God, through biblical truth, so that we can grab hold to what is pure, what is right, that has the eternal value. That's Paul's prayer. They would have, they would have understood this in the first century, having to deal with the, the metals and the, the the, the tools and the instruments, it's not quite as obvious to us, but most of us have had to deal with something around the house or at your job somewhere where you've had to clean something off, whether it be taking rust off of something or whether it be cleaning something that was uh, overgrown with uh, mold or mildew or whatever it was around the house that you had to, to, to clean up. Maybe you've restored something, whether it be a car or you've restored some sort of utensil or I've, I've seen, I don't know if any of you watch some of these HGTV shows once in a while, but there's some of these uh, home and garden shows, TLC, whatever the channel is, and they've got these people who they can take a knife that's been out in the river 
and it's all rusted over and it looks like it's got barnacles all over it with rust. And then these people, they take it into their shop and they work on it and you know how this process that they probably spend months on or weeks on, the show is what, 30 minutes or an hour? And so they make it look like it happens so quickly and it doesn't, it's a long process. And then by the end of the show, after 16 commercials, you know, um, there's, and, and, and half of them are the, the Geico Gecko, then they, they finally get to the very end and they show the knife or the sword that's been restored. And it's absolutely beautiful. They knew all the things that they had to do, a long process to get it. And in a sense, sometimes we get into situations in the world. And sometimes they're very obviously all rusted over, impurities, but it takes a long time to work through the situation and to make the right decision and to deal with the situation in a proper way that brings honor and glory to the Lord, that exalts His righteousness and His holiness. It gets complicated sometimes in life, doesn't it? And sometimes we don't like it when somebody who sees, who's more mature, who's spiritually more discerning, they see something in our life. And sometimes it's hard for them to be the, it's hard for us to accept that they are the ones who point out the impurity, who point out the dross or the dregs. And we have to allow that to be cleaned off of our life. We have to allow that to sharpen our iron, so to speak. But if we harden our neck, if we harden our heart, even when they're 95% wrong, we can take that 5% and we can learn from it to help sharpen us, to help get that impurity off. And it's hard. It's a tough process. And we have to do that, though, in order for us to make the right decisions, in order to honor the Lord, in order to please Him, in order to truly be biblical in our decision-making and in our evaluation and to truly apply a biblical worldview to situations that come up. And we, we are so lackadaisical sometimes when it comes to entertainment. It, it just it, it blows my mind sometimes how Christians are so accepting of the garbage of the world when it comes to entertainment. Well, it's just entertainment. It's just art. It doesn't affect me. The world knows. That's why they spend a million dollars on a 30-second commercial at the Super Bowl. Because they know in that 30 seconds they can make an impression. You tell me that Geico doesn't know that that gecko doesn't make an impression that makes people want to go out and buy Geico insurance and save 15% in 15 minutes. How can I just rattle that off? Because I've seen the commercials too many times. How can we walk into a grocery store and start singing the lyrics to a song that we heard 30 years ago that we know did our heart no good, that caused us to idolize a love that was just lust, that caused us to want a girl or a guy that we had no business loving, and definitely not in that way. But as soon as we walk into that store, that music's playing, and we can, our flesh gets involved, our mind starts singing. We catch ourselves in the checkout, and we're... Tapping our foot and our mind is saying the words. I'm guilty of it. <laughs> that makes an impression. So how can we as believers say, well, art and entertainment, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect me. The, the world knows it does. That's why entertainment is a multi-billion dollar industry. 
Because people will let down their guard. They will not prove things that, are di- that, that differ. They will not approve things that are excellent. They will not have a love for God. They'll have a love for the world and it will make them accept all of the garbage in all that entertainment. Because it pulls on our heart that lost us instead of a love for God and then we're accepting things that we would never accept. But we've been mesmerized by the world in the entertainment of the world. It, it, it's, it's, it's disappointing sometimes. And now we have Christians who come along and, and they say, well, I can be a good Christian and sleep with my lover. I can be, now we even have people, this is ridiculous, I know, but there's a, I can't remember the author who, who writes books and articles about how he's a homosexual Christian. And he has, grou- he has a group of homosexual believers, supposedly. Uh, it just, it, it's crazy. And people will defend him on the internet who call themselves Christians. The love, a love for God results in a discernment, in approving things that are excellent. Finding what is eternally valued, what is righteous, what is holy, and, and, and grabbing hold of that, and prioritizing the eternal. And then that leads, of course, to a pure life. If we are making good biblical decisions, then verse 10 says that the results of that, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Sincere has to do with being genuine, tested by sunlight, no impurities, no wax filling in the cracks. It would be important for someone buying clay pots, clay earthenware, that they, that they hold it up into the sunlight because what would the, the seller of the pottery do? Fill in the cracks with wax. So it would look good, but if they held it up in the sunlight, they would see the wax and know first time they put it on the fire, it would fall apart. The wax would melt and the pottery would, would fall apart. So as we have a love for God that produces biblical discernment, then the byproduct of that is a righteous life, living a holy life. There's a test of our life by the sunlight of God's word, by the tests and the trials and the tribulations even that come, and it shows that we are sincere, we are pure. We have, we're not sinless, but there is clearly a righteousness to our life. There is clearly a pattern of biblical discernment. There is clearly a love for God and desire to please the Lord and to honor Him. And there is the product of the fruit of the Spirit and the the filling of the Spirit is clearly evidenced by our life. And we are blameless in the sense of we are without offense. Our lives do not cause others to stumble. And we are not bringing reproach upon, upon the name of Christ by our life. And we are ready to stand before Christ at the judgment seat. So, convicting, convicting prayer from the Apostle Paul. And then we come down to the final point here in this prayer. And that brings us down to verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and praise of God. What happens in our life? There is a production, just as that metal comes out and it's pure and it's fit to be stamped on, to be used in currency, so our life is stamped with 
God's image. I know we're created in God's image, but Christ's likeness. There is the work of the Spirit. There's the Christ-likeness that is produced in our life. The fruit of the Spirit, fruits of righteousness are synonymous terms, essentially. There are souls one to Christ. There's a holiness to our life. There's good works. And there's a praise to God. There's a way in which we live our life that we are humble, we're meek, and we're giving God the glory. We're pointing others to Him. We're coming along and saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And we then see the, the work of God in our life that ultimately, verse 11 says, brings glory and praise to Him. This is Paul's prayer. This is a prayer that is prayed for us, that we should be praying for ourselves, but praying for our, our children, our grandchildren, praying for one another. Praying for someone that we're discipling. Praying for someone that we are working with and ministering with. We're having conversations with. We're bumping into them at church. Maybe a believer who we know at work. Who's out of church. Who's not really doing right. Struggling person at church that we're trying to to reach. It might be a young person that we've chosen to reach out to. To to, to help uh, mentor. Maybe someone who's kind of on the edge. On the peripheral edges of church. And is struggling. And we've reached out to them. And we're praying this prayer for them. And as their love for God increases, there will be that discernment. There will be then the byproduct of the righteousness and the holiness that we just read about, the fruit of righteousness that will be produced in their life by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Thank you for being here tonight. Let's bow for prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful prayer. Lord, a prayer of love. A prayer, Lord, that comes from the heart of God to the pages of Scripture that helps us in understanding what your heart is for us and that we should have for others in our homes, in our church family, those that we work with, those that we go places with, that we are involved in their lives in some way. Lord, we want to see people come to Christ, but we also know of believers who are struggling, who are weak, who are uh, immature, who, who need uh, this prayer of discernment prayed over them. And Lord, as we build that relationship with them, may Lord, you use us to help them, to disciple them, to bring them into maturity, uh, that they might uh, serve you better and love you more and bring praise and honor and glory to your name. And we thank you again for your word tonight and pray you keep us safe as we travel home. Bring us back safely, Lord, we pray on Sunday to worship you together again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here, and it's been great to be together, and look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Pray for the building committee tomorrow night as, uh, as we meet.